You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Okay, we are uh, in uh, Ecclesiastes, and we're in chapter 3 today. Um, today, we're going to talk about the most familiar passage um, in, in the book. At least it's the most familiar passage to baby boomers, and we have some, because in the 60s, the birds did a song, turn, 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 and the words were directly, except those three words, the words were directly from this passage, this poem about time. And it's a poem that comes in a context. So we're not just going to read a poem today, but it's, it's a poem that has some background to it because it's written by a guy named Ecclesiastes. He calls himself uh, the preacher or Ecclesiastes. It's the same word. He's the king of Israel. He's likely Solomon. And what we've read in the first two chapters is that he's been on a search for the meaning of life. And he's come to the conclusion that life is, uh, it is, well, it's futile, it feels like. It, it, he says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He has been searching everywhere for meaning. He's pursued wisdom. Uh, he's pursued wealth. He's had gold and silver. He's pursued building houses and gardens and um, he has 300 concubines, and so he's pursued sex, he's pursued the arts, and, and at the end of it all, he said, it's just a striving after wind. It's, 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 it's impossible to grasp. I don't feel like I have any gain in my life, even though I have everything. He has everything, and yet he says, in essence, in his soul, he has nothing. Well, at the end of chapter 2, it's very depressing up until that point. At the end of chapter 2, there's a ray of hope because what he says is everything we have is a gift of God. And if you see it as a gift of God, you can enjoy not just great things like he had, uh, which he didn't enjoy, but you can enjoy the smallest things. Uh, he says that uh, to eat and drink and to enjoy our work is the gift of God. And so he says that not only do you have to accomplish great things, he says you do not have to accomplish great things, but the gift of joy is in the very basic things of life. And so it's really a tremendous, tremendously hopeful idea that I don't have to be, be all that I could be. I don't have to be famous. I don't have to be a social media influencer. I don't have to be rich. I don't have to be uh, healthy or attractive to have joy in my life. I have to know God and recognize all I have comes from him and that he gives the ability to enjoy it all, everything about my life. So it's very, very hopeful. And then we get this poem, which really sorts out the truth that God is over every season of our lives. So I'm going to read uh, Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 through 15. This is God's word. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, 
a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into the heart, man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil, for this is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. In the book about Ecclesiastes that we've been selling at the Resource Center, recommending by David Gibson, he, he uh, shares the following illustration that I'm going to read to you. He says, I, I recently built the Millennium Falcon. For those who don't know, the Falcon, it, Falcon is one of the greatest spaceships a galaxy far, far away has ever seen. Flown by Han Solo and his sidekick Chewbacca in Star Wars, it is capable of entering hyperdrive at just the right time. And while it might look like a beaten up old wreck, everyone knows that's part of its enduring charm. And I helped build it, the Lego version, that is. My children and I opened the beautiful box at the start of a glorious holiday and poured over 1,254 pieces of the famous craft. And my eldest son set about piecing it together. It took him a total of nine hours, patiently, lovingly, brick by brick, section by section, and with growing excitement, he saw the work of his hands create something spectacular. Even his mother agreed it was superb, and she couldn't tell the Millennium Falcon from the Starship Enterprise. If you've ever built anything by Lego or from Ikea, you, know, you will know that success is achieved when you work piece by piece using each one in all the right places in all the right ways, and at all the right times. As I watched my son work, it occurred to me that life is like a construction exercise. Our lives are made up of so many different pieces, people, events, circumstances, times, places, that are all being locked together to make our individual stories. Sometimes we don't see the significance of a tiny piece of the story until later on. Often, there seems to be a brick missing, and it's hard to keep going without it. Or there's tremendous joy and satisfaction as a particular piece clicks into place and crowns a part of our life project. The difference between real life and Lego construction, however, is that we are not the ones with the instruction blueprint laid out in front of us. God is. 
We have individual pieces in our hands and the Bible God has given us enough explanation to set us building, but only he has the master plan. We're building our lives and we have an idea of how we want to do it and how we hope it will turn out, but there is so much about the shape of our lives that we cannot control. And I think he gets at the heart of what this passage is about. The poem is clearly about time, isn't it? Verse 1 says uh, for every th- uh, that there's a time for every matter under heaven. And it says that for everything there is a season. There is a season for everything. So time, it's a poem about time. Time comes at us or we experience time in seasons. A season is sort of a fixed or an appointed amount of time in our lives. And he says here there are seasons for everything. And God is obviously the God of the seasons. It's, we're coming into spring right now, and none of us have made that happen. That is God's work. And so the big idea of the poem is that God rules the seasons of our lives. The passage shows us that life is not random or meaningless, but that there is a proper time, as it says, verse 1, there's a proper time for everything, and that is ultimately according to God's plan. Everything fits together like each piece of that uh, Lego uh, ship. Everything pieces together. But the poem is ultimately not about what we do in life. It can feel that way. Oh, there's a time for me to do this and there's a time for me to do that. Time for me to do this, time for that. But the passage makes clear that it is God who directs our time. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. So God is the one that takes these various seasons and makes it all beautiful in its time. In other words, of saying his timing. Or look down at verse 14. Verse 14 says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. So the poem is really not about what we accomplish. The poem is really about God overseeing the seasons of our lives and God accomplishing his plan in our lives and in his people for all eternity. I think those two verses that I just read are so key because we have the poem and then we have how to understand the poem and how to respond to the poem. We really do see it's God's work in the poem. And look at the first line, verse two of the poem, a time to be born and a time to die. That is the work of God. God determined when you would be born. You didn't. And God will determine when you die. We don't determine that. He does. Birth and death are these bookends of our lives that God determines. But in this poem, he's using a figure of speech called a merism, where he takes two extremes or two things that are polar opposites and says that, that there's a time for these things. But the idea, the implicit idea, is that the two poles are used to describe everything in between. So when it says a time to be born and a time to die, the, 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 the idea is that it's not only those fixed points on the pole, but everything in between that God is about. Now we use merisms all the time to mean the whole and not just the two parts. So if I say, uh, I couldn't find my keys 
and I looked high and low for them, that doesn't mean I walked around the house looking at the ceiling, I don't see them high, and then looking at the floor, well, I don't see them low, that's not what it means. Um, though if you're a man looking for your keys, that may be how it works out. Uh, but it means I looked everywhere. So when he says, if God's the God of our seasons, he makes everything beautiful in its time, what he does endures. There's a time to be born and a time to die. It means that all of our life is ultimately in God's hands. The phrase really represents what's expressed in Psalm 31, 15, which says, my times are in your hand. And so we get 14 pairs of these, a time for this, a time for that. And they're both opposites with the idea that not only those opposites is God involved, but everything in between. I'm, I'm not going to break down each pair in great detail, but we will briefly survey them because we'll see that God is involved in all seasons of our lives. It, the, the poem covers so many of our life experiences in such a short period of time. It really uh, identifies so many circumstances and so many emotions that we experience in our lives. Verse 2, Time to be born, time to die, a time to plant, and a time to plunk up, pluck up what is planted. God determines all the seasons of the harvest cycle, planting and plucking up. But that's true metaphorically as well. Our lives function that way. There are times that we are putting down roots in life, and there are times that we are uprooting things in our lives. He says, verse 3, there's a time to kill and a time to heal. Now, if this is about God, that sounds a little weird to us, what, a time to kill. But the Bible does communicate that very language about God, especially when we think about Solomon who wrote this. And in his time when Israel found themselves at war with so many of their enemies and, and God's enemies. Deuteronomy 32 says, there is no God beside me. God says, there's no God beside me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Uh, it says that there's a time, verse 3, to break down and a time to build up. There are different seasons. This is helpful to know because we always just want all the positive ones. I, I want the, give me the season to build up all the time. I love building up and developing and growing and just give me that. But he says, no, there are times when we are downsizing. There's times to break down. Your job is downsizing. You're at the stage of life where you are downsizing what you have. There are times of seasons of decrease and there are seasons of building up, developing, growing. He says, there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. So, so those are kind of parallel, aren't they? A time to weep and a time to mourn, he says. And then there's a time to laugh and a time to dance. These are the seasons of our lives. There's a time to dance at a wedding and there's a time to bury the one you danced with. This is, this is life. This is how it goes, and God is Lord over all of those times. He says in verse 5, there's a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones. That sounds strange to us. What is the season of rock collecting or something? But this is a phrase that would have meant something significant to the original hearers. Because when invaders 
uh, invaded your land and, and bat, in battle or something like that, one of the things they do, did when they took a city is they took rocks, usually from a hill, large stones, and they brought them in and they just scattered them, scattered the stones all over the fields so that the crops would not come back. It was a way of not only destroying a people, but destroying their food source. And then when you came back to your land and they had done that, there's a time to gather the stones and put them back on the hill. These are the seasons of our lives, great defeats that look hopeless and a, and a time to clear out the defeat and to move on literally or figuratively. It says in verse, um, let's see, in verse five, there's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Generally, we embrace and that's a good thing, but there's a time when that, that kind of embrace is no longer needed, no longer appropriate, maybe no longer wanted. Time to embrace and a time to cease embracing. This next one stuck out to me as I was praying and studying this week. I felt the Lord put this next one on my heart, a time to seek and a time to lose. Specifically, that there might be some in the room for who this, this really applies to your life right now. A time to seek is a time to be pursuing, a time to be looking for something or someone, an opportunity, looking at this goal that I'm, I'm trying, I'm seeking this thing. But then there's the timing of the Lord to let it go and say, you know what, Lord, that's not what you have for me now. But I, I can let that go and trust that there's a season to let go. There's a season to lose. There's a season to give it away or to give up the hope and to put my hope in you. And I wonder if there's someone here today, you say that maps on where I'm living. I live with a frustration because I've been seeking this, that, or the other. And yet the Lord is saying, the seeking is done. Let it go and trust me in your life. There's a time to keep, verse 6, and a time to cast away. There's a time to sort through what we have and hang on, and there's a time to, to get rid of things. My dad, who's in his late 80s, last spring, I went through all of his stuff. My brother and I went through all of his stuff and kept a few things that were meaningful and uh, ended up dispersing many other things, donating them or selling some things. So there's a time in life when you say, boy, I'm, the se I'm at the season where I'm keeping and gathering. And then there's a time in the life that many of us may not look forward to where we are getting rid of what we have gathered because we no longer need it. Verse seven, a time to tear and a time to sow. Uh, this is about mourning. When someone died in Israel, you tore your clothes. And then there was a fixed season of mourning. And at the end of the morning, you re-sowed where you tore as a mark of mourning. In our culture, I think this is healthy. We say people mourn in different ways and in different timetables. And I, I'm for that. I think that's healthy. But there's also something healthy about the way Israel did it. There was a specific season that you acknowledged and went all in in heartbreak. And then the season ended and you sewed it up and moved on. There's something about that that was probably healthy as well. He says, uh, there's a time to keep silence, verse seven, and a time to speak. That's, that's very self-explanatory. There are seasons in our lives where we don't say a word. There's moments where it's not ours to do or say anything. 
And then there's times when you should speak, where you should instruct, where you should complain, where you should explain. The last four, I think, are related together, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. In a fallen world, there is a time for war, when the war is just and is, uh, it is an action that ultimately is to protect or rescue uh, the vulnerable and the innocent and to ultimately provide flourishing for a greater number of people. So there is a time for war, um, and there is a time to love and a time for peace. It's a beautiful poem, isn't it? It really captures all the varied circumstances and emotions that we experience. One of the things that's interesting about the poem, and I, I felt this when I read it, and when I read some commentators on it, many make this point, is that there's no logical order to the thing, so it's not like it doesn't walk through life uh, in some kind of linear way. When you read the poem, the things come at you sort of random. They feel random and haphazard. And really, the poem is structured just like life. That's how life works. You're not expecting it to be a season of mourning, and it comes upon you. You're not expecting it to seize a season of uprooting or a season of keeping and hang, holding on to. You're not ready for that. You, you think it's a season not to embrace, but it's a season to embrace. So often these things just come at us in, in ways that we don't expect. The point is that God designs it all. God is over it all. God is with us in it all, and God will work through us in it all because God is the God who is over all the seasons of our lives. So it's a beautiful poem, but the Bible's not written just so we say, well, that's, that's wonderful literature, though it is. Uh, the Bible's written to instruct us about God and to teach us how to respond to God. And I think there's two appropriate responses to this poem. They're not my ideas. They're actually found in verses 9 through 15. Here's the first one. I think the poem calls us to enjoy God's sovereignty. Now, if you came from an, like an anti-reform background, and if you did, you, know what that, you would know what that phrase means. If you didn't, don't worry about it. But if you came from an anti-reform background, you may not be able to imagine a lot of talk about God's sovereignty and enjoying life, those going hand in hand together. But the Bible always makes clear that the sovereignty of God uh, is to ultimately produce peace and joy in our hearts. He appoints our times and because he appoints our times, that's not a reason for concern. That's a reason really for joy. Look at verse 12. After talking about all of these seasons, verse 12 says, I perceived there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. So it's, it's a cause for joy to know that God is in control of the seasons of our lives. Now, look at his thinking in how, the, uh, how Solomon responds to the poem, starting in verse 9. He says, what gain has the worker from his toil? And previously, in chapters 1 and 2, he said nothing. It, it, he, that's the answer. He said, we gain nothing. That's the actual answer he gave. But here he says something else. What is the worker to gain from his toil? Well, the implicit answer may be nothing if we read chapters 1 and 2. But verse 11, 11 he says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. 
So what do we gain? We may not be able to see what we gain from all our toil in any given moment, but there's this promise that God is working in and through our toil. He is ordaining the circumstances of our lives, and he is beautifying it all in his time. He's making our seasons beautiful. Now, when we think of the word beautiful, we often think of beautiful as a visual term, a a beautiful sunset. Uh, a beautiful baby. So we think of beautiful in something that we can see, but there's broader meaning. Uh, Beauty is something that is good, something that is delightful to our eyes, something that is pleasing. We could even say it's uh, something beautiful is something that's appropriate. And, And his timing is always beautiful. He makes everything beautiful. The seasons of our lives may not feel uh, like they're orderly, shapely, uh, beautiful, delightful for sure. They may not feel that, but in God's timing, they are. He's never early. He's never late. He always acts in a fitting and in a pleasing way, even when we can't perceive it. Because often the seasons look ugly to us. Some of you are in a season right now that you think there's nothing beautiful about the pain that I feel because of this relationship. Nothing beautiful about the pain I feel uh, in, in, <clears throat> in the loneliness, in the darkness that I'm battering, there, uh, that's battering me. There's nothing beautiful uh, about this season of my marriage or my work or my relationship with my family or extended family or whatever, whatever it may be. So it, it, it's, it's, it's hard for us to see. Knowing that God determines the seasons and understanding what he's doing in the seasons, those are two very different things. We want to understand what he is doing in every season. And Solomon acknowledges that. Verse 11, he says, God has put, uh, he's not only made everything beautiful, he's put eternity in our hearts. Do you see that? He's put eternity. We long for the transcendent. We long to know God. We long to be with God. We long for eternity to be out of the fallen world and to be in God's new world, the new heaven and new earth. And yet we're not there because look what he says afterwards. He says he's put eternity in our hearts yet. So here's the what we don't don't have right now. Yet he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. God, we want to experience your transcendence. We want eternity, but we can't figure out what's happening from the beginning and the end in our days. And so we only enjoy God's sovereignty by faith. It's by faith. It's by trusting God will beautify this. Or as the New Testament says, he will all things work together for the, to the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. This is, that's the New Testament. Romans 8 is the New Testament version of he makes all things beautiful in its time. We want to know what's going on, but we can't see it. And, and so it's only by faith that we can trust God and then enjoy our lives because he is in control. Here, here's a, a, an illustration, or a, not an illustration, an analogy that I've heard used a number of times about the sovereignty of God. I think it's really helpful in this passage. It says, we look at life oftentimes like looking at the backside of a tapestry. So if you've ever seen a tapestry or maybe one that's uh, on a loom or someone even looking at the back of one that's hanging or something like that, sometimes you look at the back of uh, a tapestry and you can't even make out what the image is. 
Because on the backside, there's thread or string or whatever it is. Sometimes it's knotted up and it's jumbled and it sort of just looks like a mess. There's no recognizable pattern. To, to see the beauty of the tapestry, you got to see it on the front-facing side, the side that's facing everybody when it's hung up. And then you can see the design, the beauty. Uh, you can see the, the work that came from the artist uh, in this art form. And that's a lot what like, life is like. We, our vision is the backside, the underside of the tapestry. And so we look at our lives and go, man, it's a jumbled mess. I can't make heads or tails out of it. I can't understand where it came from or where it went, where that, where that connects to this. It just looks like a mess. And it seems like there's no design to it all. But if you could see the other side of the tapestry, which is only visible to God, you would see the beauty of the design, that God is making something, that he has made something, that he will make something that's glorious. The colors blend together uh, in a majestic way. The design, oh, it's crystal clear. Whatever the scene is or the, the image is, it is crystal clear. And so we have to trust that the designer, the artist, is making all things beautiful, even where all we can see are a lot of knots and a lot of confusion on the underside of the tapestry. Some of us right now are in seasons that make no sense. You're in a financial season. This does not make sense. Everything we planned on, everything we did, how are we here? Or you're in a relational situation where it's all knots, or your job or your family. Maybe it's your physical or your mental health. You, you look and think, well, this is what I think life should be like, and it's just a bunch of knotted up confusion without design and certainly lacking beauty is how you feel. But the promise is that God is doing something that is beautiful. From his perspective, if you could see it, you'd be amazed at what he's doing in your life, in our church, in the people of God all over the world today. Sometimes we see the beauty later in life. Sometimes God is gracious and lets us see, oh, that's what you were doing. I thought that was a jumbled up, uh, a lot of jumbled up things, but I see on the other side, it's a beautiful tree that was designed. It sure didn't look like a, uh, a lovely image of a tree uh, on my side. But now I see what the Lord was doing over time. We've all had those experiences. That's why I went through that difficult time. But you know, sometimes you don't see the other side of the tapestry until heaven. There's some things we will never understand this side of Christ's return. We have to take it by faith. And that's why I say enjoying God's sovereignty requires believing that there's another side to the tapestry. That verse 12 is true, that God is beautifying everything in his time. And what happens when we believe that God's at work beautifying even the hard times then we can live out verses 12 and 13. So after he says uh, he makes everything beautiful in his time, that's where verse 12 he says, there's nothing better than to be joyful, to do good. That, that's important, do good. To believe that God is sovereign doesn't mean we're passive. It doesn't mean that we don't take action in seasons that are difficult. It doesn't mean that we just stand back and watch the video of our life. We are active participants. We serve, we love, we act, we pray. We try to make things better. We try to help other people 
people flourish and grow. So we act for sure. For sure, he says, be joyful and do good as long as you live. Verse 13, eat and drink and take pleasure in all its toil. This is God's gift to man. Do you see how that, what a difference that makes that we can we can enjoy the simple things of life when we know God has the big picture under control. God has the little picture under control. God has the whole thing under control. And so when we say God is sovereign and God is in control, we can do so with a smile on our faces, not a begrudging giving up to God as if he's doing something bad. No, God is always doing something good even when we can't see that. We enjoy life because God rules over the seasons of our lives. The person who believes in the sovereignty of God should be the most joyful person uh, in the world. And even in times of mourning and difficulty, there's an underlying foundation of joy that sustains us and holds us up when we, when we see that God is at work. So we should enjoy God's sovereignty. And secondly, the other point he makes here is that we should fear the Lord. Joy and fear the Lord, how do those go together? Well, I think they always do go together. Here's why we fear the Lord, verse 14. I perceive that whenever God, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. So the seasons, what God is doing over time in the world, among his people, in our individual lives, what he does endures. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it. So God is acting in a way, he is establishing, he is acting in a way for his glory and your good, and no one can tamper with it. You're not subject, you're not ultimately subject to your boss. Now, all we can see is your boss and you're not getting along with him and he's giving you an unfair review and he's treating you uh, in a way that's unjust. That's, that's all you can see. But there's someone over your boss. There is a capital B-O-S-S over the boss and that's God. And he has control of your life. He will work as he wants. And so when we see that, that what God does lasts, not what lowercase boss does, that doesn't last, but what God does, it says, verse 14, when we see that, that people may fear before him. Now, it doesn't mean fear God in the sense of God is evil. He's not, or that God's going to harm us as believers. He's not. But it means fear in living in an absolute awe. When we live our lives and go, God is working in a million ways, orchestrating everything for his glory, that is awe-inspiring. We can't figure that out. And so we respond to God, God with reverence and with awe. And, and we say, God, you are ruling over the seasons of our lives. And God, by your grace, would you get me to the next season soon? And would you be kind enough to show me, let me learn something from the season, show me why I'm doing this. But whatever you do, I know the other side of the tapestry is beautiful. And so I trust you. I'm in awe of you. I, I am amazed by you. It, the poem is a window into God's great power. And when we see that, we feel small. The fear of God is about feeling very small before a majestic and glorious God. When, when we see the power of God and the, the infinity of God, the glory of God, then that is when we are fearing God. He is very big and we are very, very small and very, very needy. As I prayed earlier, just one hour of sleep can, can uh, I've read whole articles, I saw, I didn't read them, I saw whole articles this week about what happens with daylight savings time and why it's bad for our health. And I'm, it's an hour. 
And we've got whole articles about how this messes up the rhythm of, okay, I, I'm, whether you're for it or against it, it's an hour. <laughs> We're very small. This is what Sidney Gradena says about this. He says, this was God's purpose in settling the times. God's times make us aware of our helplessness. We cannot control the times. God's time makes us aware of our total dependence on God. We do not even know the times. Awareness of our helplessness and dependence makes us stand in awe before God. He is the sovereign God who controls all things. When we read this lovely poem and we think God is behind all of the times, not that our actions don't matter. The Bible never teaches that. Our actions matter. It's a mystery how it all works together. But our actions matter. But ultimately, the ruler of the times of our lives, of our church, of our families, of our nation, of our world, they're in God's hands. And so we look to him. It, it's, it's, to, it's to make us feel small so that, as we are so that we look to him and lean on him. Think about if it's not true. Think about life as a Christian if God's not in control of your seasons. If God isn't in control, why pray? Because he can't do anything about it. He's limited. If God doesn't make all things beautiful for us, then where's the hope in suffering? There is no hope in suffering. If God's not making this beautiful, that he's not using it for our good and for his glory and somehow the good of others. If he isn't in control, then where's our confidence? Where's our security? If God is not in control, you have no security. It's all on your shoulders. That is a terrible way to live. That is, that is a stay up at night and can't sleep anxious way to live. If God's work doesn't last, as this passage says, then why be joyful and do good? All is vanity. If God's work doesn't last, what he's doing through us doesn't last, then the first two chapters are right. Life is elusive. You can't grab onto it. There's nothing to it. But, but God, what he does through us lasts. He designs the season so that we can fully trust in him, even when life is knotted and jumbled up like the backside of a tapestry. Now, here's the final idea I want to share with you that's not in this passage, but it's in the Bible. We have a great advantage over Solomon, a great advantage. Here's how Jesus said it. One greater than Solomon is here. We have a great advantage because we know something about how God acts in time that Solomon didn't know. You see, we know Galatians Chapter 4, which was written, written way before Solomon. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That's what we know about God's time, that in the perfect time he sent Jesus, God became man to come to bring us into his family. We know what Jesus said in Mark 1, verse 15. The time 
is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. When Jesus comes, a new season arrives on earth. And this season lasts from Jesus' coming, his first time, to Jesus' return, his second time. And that's the season we're all in, the season of salvation, where anybody who repents from their sins and believes in Jesus can receive new life and can know the God who, who oversees their seasons and works to be, make everything beautiful in its time. If you've never trusted Jesus, the Bible says, now is the time. It actually says that. Now is the day of salvation. We don't have to wonder, is this a season for faith? Yes, it's a season for faith. Yes, it's a season to know the grace of God in your life. I love Romans 5, verse 6. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus came in God's perfect time. And what did he do in the time he had? He gave his life for us. And he's returning again. He's returning again. This is what Jesus said in Mark 13. Concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. So we live in the time of God's grace and salvation if you're a believer in Jesus. We live alert to his return. And while we await his return, we are seeking to be joyful. We're receiving his joy and doing good, as the passage said. We're trying to share with our neighbors the good news that, yes, seasons come and go for Christians and for unbelievers alike. We have very similar seasons in our lives, human experience a life under the sun in a broken world. But Jesus has come to make all things new, and that's already begun in his resurrection. He's already begun to make all things new in us, and he will return to usher in a new heaven and a new earth. So today, the season for all of us, the one season for all of us is the season of good news, to know Jesus Christ and to trust him so that when all of these other seasons come and go, we know that he is with us, God with us, with us in all of our seasons, no matter what it looks like. He's working all things together for our good. Friend, he makes all things beautiful in its time. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today and we just say that our seasons are perplexing. They don't make sense. Lord, we understand the seasons of fall, winter, spring, and summer but the seasons of our lives are often perplexing. And Lord, I pray specifically for those in the room today who are going through a hard season, a hard time. I pray that you would give them the gift of joy because you are in control. And I pray that you give them the fear of the Lord, that is, they would be in awe and reverence of you, that the season wouldn't be so massive in their eyes, but the Lord over the season would be massive in their eyes. Would you do that, Lord? Would you adjust our perspective? Would you adjust our perspective? Some of us are in winter and the trees are barren and we feel alone and isolated. Would you show us you're here with us in winter? Would you show us that, Lord? Would you show us? And would you communicate to us afresh your love and your care today? Lord, we freshly submit our lives to you and we ask that you would give us grace to experience joy in you and through you, knowing that you are with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. 
To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.